Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8 as we continue our study of the book of Luke after a two-week break. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20 is our passage. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, and that passage can be found on page 857 if you are using a church Bible, page 857. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. Before we look at the text this morning, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we ask that you would please speak to us in your word and, and show to us uh, your glory, your love for us, your amazing grace, your sovereign power, your goodness. Uh, by the Holy Spirit, God, would you make who you are everything to us, that we might love you with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, that we might love you with all of our strength in a way that causes us to even love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We ask by our grace, God, that you would show us the beauty of Jesus Christ, that you would show us Jesus. And please bring those who do not know you this morning into a real, uh, life-changing and joyful knowledge of who you are. And for those of us who already do know you, would you deepen our knowledge and our affection for you? We ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our text this morning comes off of the heels of the birth of Jesus Christ. And our Savior is born in, in poverty, obscurity, and, and utter humility. Joseph and a pregnant Mary, Jesus' mother, they had to make this long trek to Bethlehem because the ancient world's ruler, Caesar, wanted to register all the people Rome had conquered for taxation purposes and to accumulate for himself a larger army in some areas. And so Joseph and Mary and their nation and their people are a conquered people. And when this young couple finally arrives in Bethlehem late into Mary's third trimester, there is no place for them. And yet she has to give birth because when the time comes, the time comes. And the Son of God and God himself is born as a baby and wrapped in cloths to keep him warm, and he is laid in a feeding trough for animals, a manger to be his bassinet. Jesus is born where no child should be born, and there is no pomp, no majesty, no glory, no crowd, no welcome, no bells, and no whistles of any kind. The circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ seem to cry out tragedy rather than glory. That Mary, the favored one, she is called in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, she looks a lot less favored here and a lot more unfortunate. That the birth of the most important person in all of human history looks to be largely ignored and utterly insignificant. And if the text surrounding the birth of Jesus had ended in verse 7, the natural conclusion of the matter would be, this surely cannot be the Son of God. It just simply doesn't make any sense. But the text does continue. And the chapter continues in such a way that the only conclusion of this matter that we can be brought to is that this surely can be none other than the Son of God. We read in verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The birth that looked to be largely ignored and utterly insignificant is here announced within a blaze of God's very own glory. And what we have in these verses is the very first preaching of the gospel of sorts. This is a proclamation of the good news coming from the lips of an angel surrounded by the brightness of God and is delivered to the lowest of people. This is a condescending humility which is wrapped in a heavenly glory that in the very region where Jesus had been born, an angel, a heavenly messenger of the Lord appears and the text says in verse 9 that the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were immersed into something they had not ever experienced before. They were utterly surrounded. And this is not the angel's own glory, but this is God's own glory that lights up that midnight sky. It's the kind of glory that we've seen throughout the Bible. as in Isaiah chapter 6 where the mere experience of it can cause even a holy prophet of God to fall onto his face and tremble and cry out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's the kind of glory and the kind of experience where you can't but help to feel fear, where you can't but help to feel guilt and inadequacy. And understand intimately your own imperfections within the presence of something so much higher than we are. Which is why the angel immediately has to bring comfort to these shepherds who have no idea what it is that is happening. This is why the very first words off of his angelic lips has to be, fear not. Fear not. And what is the reason? It's a greater reason than just relaxing this moment right now because the angel is bringing good news of a great joy that will be for all the people this angelic visit is not for harm and it is not for judgment this announcement is a proclamation of good good news and this good news is not limited to israel this good news is not limited to the rich or to the privileged or to the upper crust of society this good news of a great joy will be for all the people. Alexander McLaren, he writes this, the angel speaks by the side of the shepherds, not from above. His gentle encouragement, fear not, not only soothes their present terror, but has a wider meaning. The dread of the unseen, which lies coiled like a sleeping snake in all hearts is utterly taken away by the incarnation. There is a dread of the unseen in every human heart. Some people who have been through near-death experiences can attest to this coiled snake within their heart. There's a conscience given to each of us which has already condemned us at various times in our own lives. That if there were to be a perfect and holy and righteous God out there, 
we would have every reason to fear in meeting him. And yet the gist of the angelic preaching is fear not. Because the gospel is the good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. The gospel is summed up in the coming of a person. The Christian message is not about a way of life or follow this method. It's not even a religion per se. Christianity is primarily about a person. The gospel message is primarily about a person. And this is the person who has just been born in poverty, obscurity, and humility, who the shepherds would not have known of had God not sent an angel to testify to them. The faith that we hold on to is a faith that is given to us, and this faith is in the person of Jesus. And this Jesus is given three titles in this announcement. Verse 11, Jesus is a Savior, which means He saves, He rescues from sin, from death, from destruction. He saves us from the evil one. But ultimately, He saves us from the righteous wrath of God, which we deserved. We need to be saved by God, from God. The title Savior implies that we each need a Savior. Because we absolutely need to be saved. We can't save ourselves. We can't dig ourselves out of our pit. We can't contribute to our salvation in the least bit. We're simply not good enough. We're sinful people, a a contaminated race, a broken humanity who have each and have all turned away from God. And yet God sends his son to be a savior. Even his name, Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is much more than the shepherds can understand in this moment. This is much more than what we can understand in a thousand moments. And as Jesus will heal the sick and the blind, as he will touch the leper who hadn't been touched for years and forgives the worst of sinners and calls the shadiest of tax collectors, come and follow me. The book of Luke will unfold more and more what it means that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus here is also called the Christ. And that word is a title which means the anointed one, the Messiah. And this title points back to promises made over a period of generations and centuries that God would send the deliverer, the anointed one, who will save his people forever. God did not have a plan A, and when that didn't work out, a plan B, and then when that didn't work out, a plan C. No, but from the very entrance of sin into the world, the promise is given that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3. From the very moment humanity had turned and rebelled against God, God had already planned and already promised this Messiah to come. He's a long-predicted one. He is a long-awaited one. He is the one in, in whom all of God's promises find fulfillment. And what the Jewish people in the first century were waiting for, for generations, is actually what the entire world has been needing since the fall of humanity in the garden where we lost our God and where we lost our way. And the anointed one and the Messiah would one day come and visit us. The angel is declaring that he has been born. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus here is also called the Lord, and and this title is perhaps the most staggering. 
This is the first time that Luke, in Luke, that the Lord God is also referred to as the Messiah. The first time Luke links the Christ to deity this explicitly. And this is a confirmation of the incarnation, that the Son of God and God himself has come as humanity, that the Word is made flesh, as John 1 puts it. Emmanuel, God with us, as Matthew 1 puts it. The Savior who is the Christ, the Lord, as Luke puts it. That the creator and the maker of all sits as creation, in a sense, in a manger, trying to keep warm in a pile of clothing. The Savior, the promised Messiah, and the Lord are one in the person of Jesus Christ. This is his identity. And it is the coming of this very person, which is good news of a great joy, which will be for all the people. This is a, a glorious message. The angel's proclamation of this gospel, this good news, that the one born in poverty, obscurity, and humility, who we might conclude could never ever be the Son of God, is here by the lips of a heavenly angel surrounded by the blazing glory of Yahweh himself is testified to as the Savior and as the Christ and as the Lord himself that this child could be no one else other than the Son of God. And yet, it is at the top of verse 11 that the message is, for unto you is born this day. Who is the you in the immediate context? The audience of this heavenly preaching is the lowest of people. A handful of peasant shepherds in the cool, dark night working the graveyard shift. These are the people who handled animals as their occupation. They raised the sheep that would be slaughtered in Jerusalem as a part of worship. And they ironically themselves were disqualified from participating in that worship because they were rendered ceremonially unclean by the nature of their very jobs, watching over and dealing with the filth of the animals. They weren't even allowed to be part of the worship they raised the animals for. In the first century, shepherds had a poor reputation, low esteem, and were looked down upon, sometimes held in suspicion, and yet, to what group of people does the Lord send his angel and blaze a glory to? Not to the rich. Not to royalty as prerequisites. Not to the religious leadership of the day. He didn't call a summit and have all the kings and the world rulers show up for this announcement. Now the announcement and the preaching of this angel's gospel comes to the unclean, it comes to the poor, the despised, who worked out in the fields in the middle of the night. That these are the ones who get to be the very first recipients of the good news of a great joy for all the people. The highest announcement is given to those at the very bottom. And that gives hope to everybody. There is no bottom low enough where you can say, God does not offer me hope. The scene that Luke gives to us of an angel descending from heaven, immersed in the glory of God, appearing to fearful, unclean animal handlers is a picture and a portrait of God's grace. His kindness and his favor to the undeserving, 
given to the least expected recipients, which is a theme that will be played out in the rest of Luke's book, and is also what we have already been seeing in the opening two chapters of it. How does it open? Childless couple, virgin peasant girl, no name shepherds. There is hope for everyone, brothers and sisters. Everyone. Don't you ever think, no matter what you're going through in this life, that the Lord of all grace has not offered you hope, even if you're way on the outskirts. Even if you hit rock bottom, God has come to you in Jesus the Christ. And the very sign given to these no-name shepherds, verse 12, is a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And look at this paradox. The Savior, the Christ, the Lord, baby swaddled manger. The angel, the glory of God, uncleaned no-name shepherds. Good news of great joy for all of the people. I'm sure that there are many babies in Bethlehem, but there's only one born in these conditions. He is easy to identify. There's only one this lowly. And this is, again, a picture of this condescending humility of God, which is wrapped in his heavenly glory, that the child no one could ever think would ever be the son of God. He is undeniably so. There is no other. Verse 14, we continue. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Here we have thousands upon thousands of angels, the heavenly hosts arrayed in their ranks appearing suddenly. And they're praising God for his glory, and they are praising God for the peace he gives to those who believe, one and two. I remember hearing a seminary professor preaching at a chapel years and years ago talking about angels. And on the night, Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Matthew 26, in verse 53, Jesus declares there to all who would listen, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus, on the day of his death, was not helpless he knew that he didn't have to die against his will, but he declared there that it is his will to die for those who would believe. But a legion of angels is about 6,000 of them. That's military language. And 12 legions, therefore, is 72,000 of them. And at one point in history, in 2 Kings 19.35, a single angel struck down 185,000 Assyrians which means at any given time the heavenly host could take out the entire population of the world with ease. These angels are not naked babies with little bows and arrows. Do you think that the God of all goodness and righteousness and a purity of holiness doesn't see what we see? You think the things that you read about that are disgusting that humanity is capable of, you think that the all-knowing God doesn't know about them? I mean, true, there are high points to humanity. It doesn't erase the low points. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, we are capable of building beautiful hospitals 
and we are capable of creating the most dreadful concentration camps. We are as glorious as an angel and yet as dreadful as an ape. And that the human dilemma, the image of God and yet marred by sin. And that the story of your relationships, even your marriages, the beauty of God and yet marred by sin. The human dilemma, and here we have the sudden appearance of the heavenly host, an army of angels, and yet this is not a proclamation of war, but it is a declaration of peace because the child has been born in the manger, not swords drawn, but worshipful mouths open and singing praise to God that his highest glory in this very moment is that the holy God who hates sin and must punish those who commit it is actually declaring peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased, which is to say, among those whom receive this child, with whom those will believe. If you are a believer, God's favor rests on you. We don't believe on our own. It is an act of his gracious favor. And the sending of the Savior, the Christ the Lord, is an offer to peace, an offer of peace to the lowest, the poor, the weakest, the sinful, the wicked. It's an offer of peace even to the enemies of God that at the very sight of this being actualized in history and the birth of this child, the angels who destroy people for their dishonoring of God are now singing praise at the prospect of peace with God. And this is not the only place in Luke where we will see this. Luke 15, a set of parables there. One lost sheep. The shepherd leaves 99 of them to find the one lost one. Why? Because there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Lost coin. Finally found. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Lost prodigal son who offended his father, ran away and spent his dad's cash until it was all gone in the most unrighteous of ways you can use your imagination. He finds himself in a pigsty, and he comes to the realization that these pigs have a better life than me. This son turns and goes back to his father with no entitlement, no expectation to be received as family. Maybe I can just be a slave. And his father threw for this sinful boy who came back home the fattest party he could come up with. And why is that? Because the greatest joy of heaven occurs among the angels and the heavenly host over even one of us who would repent and come back home and be at peace with God. Are you at peace with God? Some of us are not. And it's time to come back home. And so why is it that the angels sing like this? Because they want you to know the heart of our God. They want you to know the theme of heaven's praises. They want you to picture the joy of heaven. That glory to God in the highest is when on earth this peace is given to those upon whom he is pleased, upon those who will believe. God has offered you 
everything. God has offered you Jesus. And if you want peace with God, you want peace with others, you want peace even within yourself, you must come to the person of Jesus Christ and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from anyone and anything that distracts you from this person of Jesus Christ. That's a proper response to the preaching of the gospel. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We all must do something with this baby in the manger. There's no middle ground. We either put our trust in him and live or we turn away from him and we are condemned. But the good news of a great joy is that any and all who do believe, they will not perish ever and they will have life and life eternal. And that word eternal means a lot more than length of time. Now on a side note, this worship of all the angels is accomplished in the presence of no earthly crowd. We are often tempted to value ministry by how many people that ministry reaches. We're often tempted to gauge the quality of worship by how big the earthly crowd. The bigger the crowd, the better the ministry. The bigger the church, well, they must know what they're doing because bigger always equals better. But the worship of worship services here, as we get a peek into the very worship of heaven and the host of angels, is witnessed here by a mere handful of animal herders. That's it. Well, why'd you go through all that trouble then? What's the point if there's no one to see it? I mean, no one knows who these guys even are. And we never hear from them again after our text. This whole supernatural display for what? Because worship and the value of it is not about the numbers and attendance, brothers and sisters, but about the heart of those who do worship God because they understand that the highest glory we can witness of his is by the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save a sinful people and to give them peace. And the worship of the Son of God and God himself is worthy to be accomplished with all our might, whether people give heed or whether they never do. And so we see at the attendance of the birth of Christ that what the angels value most is not the crowd. It's not often what the world values most. And the church of Jesus Christ, his bride, ought to be much more like the angels in our worship and sing to him with all our might, and live unto him with all our hearts, even if no one else on this earth even cares to take notice. Verse 15, we continue. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, 
which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. We see a couple of responses to the angels preaching as we close our passage today. The shepherds, they have to act once they hear the message proclaimed. They have to talk about it with each other. We hear it. We got to digest this. Let's talk about it. And then they respond. They make haste. They waste no time. We have to find out about this child. And they go and they find everything exactly how it was told to them. They didn't wait till the next day. They didn't say later this week we'll go check it out when we have time. We have to figure out about this child. And then they proclaimed what they heard to everyone who would listen to a bunch of dirty animal herders. And their proclamation was such that all who heard it wondered. These people didn't see a single angel. They didn't get to see the heavenly host. They were not immersed, immersed in the blazing glory of God, but they just heard the message. The power is in the message that all who hear about it wonder. These people don't see the things that they saw, but they heard the testimony of the truth of God's word. And so we have the angels preaching, talking about, then talking about the word of God with each other. That's what small groups are like. And then they got to find out, is this real? Search for its reality. And then upon seeing it and understanding it, we're going to proclaim it to anyone who would listen. And then they're praising and adoring God for all they had seen and all they had heard. That's their life now. Adoration. And I think that's a good response to the preaching of God's word. Mary, who has had a rough year, I mean, she's a teenager pregnant out of wedlock. It's a difficult situation at home, to say the very least. I think she went to go visit Elizabeth a little bit to get away from her hometown. Who's going to believe her alibi? And the one she's supposed to be closest to, Joseph, her fiancé, what a twist in their relationship. And then here, under Roman power, she gives birth around a bunch of beasts. Her firstborn baby lays in a manger. And yet God, the good shepherd, sends to her a few other shepherds to testify to her. This baby's significance as a Savior and as a Christ and as a Lord. And the text says she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And I think that that is a good response as well to the hearing of the Word of God. You treasure up the truth. You ponder on them. You think about them. You contemplate them in your heart. Because if this is all true, it changes absolutely everything about this world. It changes everything about our lives and what we live for. It changes everything about what we think about our futures, not the next 10, 20 years, but the next 10,000, 20,000 years. It changes how we think about God. It gives us an experience of life and joy with Him. This God of glory who condescends to us 
to offer us this peace and joy that nothing else in all the world could ever deliver. Derek Thomas, he asked the question, what do you think about when you're not thinking about anything? What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything? Where does your mind go to the kids, the fence that needs to be fixed, bills that need to be paid, the decisions I wish I made differently, that raise I hope I get, the various lusts our hearts are prone to having, the temptation to just getting more stuff for myself, storing it up here like this is forever, the desire for more power, for more me, that one thing, if I just get that one thing, then I can finally be happy. Some of us, when we aren't thinking about anything, keep replaying all the ways that we've been wronged in this life over and over again and again. What we meditate upon, what we ponder and what we think about, even when we're not thinking about anything at all, is really what we value most. It's what we believe in most. And it is often a bunch of stuff that can never give to us a peace that only God can give to us. Do you ever just sit and stare off and dwell upon this good news of a great joy that will be for all the people? you ever just think and take a catalog of your sins even? Just one by one. I did that. I did that to the person I love most, supposedly. And that, and I can't believe I forgot I did that. And just realizing that God is forgiven and washed, forgiven and washed, forgiven and washed each and every single one. You ever think about what you're supposed to experience as a result of your sin, and yet God says, we have peace. You ever get amazed by that? I'm a sinful person, and I'm at peace with a holy God. I've been forgiven. You ever think about the next 20,000 years? That our best times in life, our best times walking hand in hand with God here, our peaks of our spiritual high are just a, a little bump compared to what we're going to experience forever and evermore. I mean, some of us in this room know very closely people who are experiencing that right now. You ever dwell upon what they're experiencing? Contemplate and treasure these things in your heart. Ponder them because God sent his son to be born in a manger, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. Alexander McLaren, he writes this, a, a non-meditative religion is a shallow religion. Unless we too treasure it in our hearts and by patient brooding on it, understand its hidden harmonies and spread our souls to receive its transforming power, we will never understand its inmost sweetness to us nor let it take a sovereign grip of our very selves. We have to ponder and think and treasure if we want the truth of this gospel to be sweet to us and take a grip of our very selves. You know, as we come to the Lord's table, God himself, in his grace, really, he gives to us a practice that as the church gathers, he gives to us a sacrament, a means of grace, calling us to contemplate. As we had the bread in the one end and, and the cup in the other, we're supposed to think upon the beauty of this gospel and feel 
the, the, the worth of Christ, that it takes nothing less than the entire body. He actually had to have a body. It takes all of his body to save us. It's nothing less than the blood of Christ to wash us whiter than the snow. Why? So that we might have God. We're called to contemplate and treasure as a church family that if you believe in this Christ, you have been truly favored by God. And it is only by his grace that the lowly could ever treasure this good news that he has given to us. We're called to ponder anew together, brothers and sisters, what the Lord has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and, and we thank you, God, for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, by your grace and by your spirit, would you make him everything to us? May we gaze into him, the, the light of your grace, his glory, that everything else might grow strangely dim by comparison. God, would you help us experience more and more the joy there is in knowing you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And let that be transforming. Would you captivate our minds so that when we're not thinking about anything, our minds drift to you. And if they don't, make them drift to you. God, we love you. We love you. And even that is just a fraction of how much you've loved us. We thank you, God, for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.